0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. I just want to say thank you for joining us. It might have been a little harder to wake up this morning being a little darker and wet. Uh, We count it a true blessing that you would choose to be with us this morning. Uh, As we begin, I want to point out in your bulletin, there's a little half sheet of paper um, that thing is there for you if you would like to take notes during our teaching time, if you have ideas you want to jot down, verses, ideas, um, just ways to help you process our teaching time, that's there for you, so I want to make sure you note that. Today we are in week four of our Lenten journey in the book of Lamentations, and um, as we've said each week, Lent is the season of 40 days approaching Easter. Historically, this is a season marked by waiting, longing, and preparation. Um, It's this time when we try to find ways to enter into and remember and experience something of the 40 days that Jesus spent fasting and being tempted in the wilderness. And we purposely make space to enter into the season for the very fact that on our own, we do not like to choose the option of waiting. We don't like questions. We don't like to repent. We don't want to fast. We want things to um, happen quickly and we want answers right now and quick fixes and we definitely want to feel in control and we love to feel certain and self-reliant. So today we are looking at what is the second half of chapter 3, part 2 from last week, Um, but before we do, let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, we invite you... And say thank you for being with us right now. You've already been participating with us in this service. And right now, Holy Spirit, we continue to ask you to move. To give us ears to hear, eyes to see you. But we also ask, God, that we would have a sense that you hear us. And that you see us as we dive into our text this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. As I said last week, having studied this text, particularly chapter three of Lamentations, convinced that this chapter is often one of the most poorly quoted and preached on verses in the Bible, it's this chapter where we see hope arise for the first time in the book. Kind of. It's this very small section that that talks about hope that gets talked about a ton, um, almost like a one-hit wonder given the topic of hope, people find this little section and they pick it, but rarely do they include all the context, particularly everything that's happening around on both sides, up and down around the text. They don't show that this is not the happy ending of a story, but this emotionally driven kind of high of the book. They don't show the entangled theology that's going on where both hope and despair and terror and hope and doubt and hope and humiliation are sitting side by side, if not literally tangled together. And so you don't get the sense of what we're looking at. What we're looking at is this very intense, highly emotional, extremely graphic, kind of schizophrenic on and off lament And screams and cries and pleas of the people who have experienced the most tragic, utter destruction of everything and anything they've ever known. The book of Lamentations is a book of five poems collected, designed to help capture and describe and paint a picture of what it is like seeing and experiencing suffering as seen in this place, Jerusalem. Once thought as the most powerful place on earth with God on its side, that now is literally brought down into piles of dust by the Babylonians, leaving nothing of value to be found. As we've journeyed through this text, we remember that this is poetry, and so you read it differently than an encyclopedia or a dictionary, and that's important for us to note These words in this text are designed to connect to our soul and to our experiences in a different way than facts are intended to. And as we've studied, we've looked at three poems so far, and in those three poems, we've been introduced to three characters. The narrator who started it off very distant and disconnected, kind of like a newscaster who has just arrived on the scene of a very tragic event And they come and they're describing it from the outside, very disconnected and unaware of the true emotion that's happening in the moment, which is why when you watch this on TV, they always ask such bad questions, right? Here's the example. Uh, yeah, we're here live with the badly burned wife and only survivor of a house explosion resulting in the tragic loss of her entire family, her home, and all of her possessions. Amy, can you just take a moment here and please tell us what you're feeling right now? And we all stop and go, that's, that's your first question? Really? The text, we see this narrator at first who's at a distance looking in, making judgments, disconnected from the story. And we learned that the farther we are removed from a person and their story, the easier it is for us to make judgments. We also meet this person, Zion, this woman, female personification of Jerusalem, who has just had everything she knows and loves utterly destroyed. We have her lament and cry for someone just to see her, to be with her, to acknowledge her pain, and we see her cry, look, Lord, on my affliction. That's her words, and it's those words that drive everything she's saying, because she's in a place in which she feels like everyone, including God, has turned on her. Then, as we got into chapter 3 last week, we were introduced to a third anonymous character we called the everyman. And this poem refers to this person as a geber, which is defined as a male charged with the responsibility of the defense of the women and the children and those others in need. Basically, to come in and help those who need help. What we saw was, instead of defending others, he's a captive, agonizingly and shamefully unable to fulfill his protective role, his ability to defend even himself, magnifies how powerless he is. So the beginning of chapter 3, we're introduced to this guy who's supposed to come and save, and instead it starts with this language, God has pierced my heart, he's filled me with bitterness and gall. He's crushed my teeth with gravel and made my life miserable. And then out of nowhere, we get verse 21 of chapter 3, and he says this, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we all go, yeah, I've heard this verse before. Never in this context. What's he saying? He's saying God's mercies, yep, they're still true. God can still be trusted. There still may yet be hope. And last week we learned that this is this this kind of back and forth hope and hopelessness kind of schizophrenic picture is what scholar Kathleen O'Connor refers to as entangled, entangled theology, where you see things like hope, in fear standing side by side hope and doubt hope and despair all standing side by side and we also learn that all of us if we're really honest experience life the same way even though it goes against what our culture says is how we should live right we've bought a lie that says hope is the absence of all these other emotions If we have hope, we obviously can't have doubt and despair and questions. Or if we're over here with our questions and doubts, we obviously don't have hope. We face the facts that we live in a culture that hides, in a culture that doesn't make space to allow for authenticity because we're afraid of how it might destroy our hope. And we even looked at the example of Jesus, him experiencing entangled theology when he's dragged through the crowds as they throw rocks and stones at him, as they're mocking him, literally, save yourself. They're carrying the cross, he's bearing it down, it's crushing him and trampling, he's experiencing whips and lashes and being spit on. In those moments, do we see Jesus saying, I still have hope. No. He pleads to God for another way. He prays a cry of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does this mean Jesus lost his hope? No. I believe Jesus in his humanity has echoed this entangled theology and what it looks like as we see it in Lamentations, He has hope and it's standing side by side with the despair that he's experiencing in that moment. And finally we learned that although all the way up to this point in chapter three, we never hear God speak, that maybe because this is poetry, that there's a different picture of God in the text. And we pondered the idea that the presence of God isn't found specifically in words that are written that says, and then God said, yada, 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 but that we might see God at work in these poems through the images and the actions of the characters. And what are they doing? They're seeing and they're listening and they're drawing near to those in need and despair and that perhaps the hope comes from people living out the gospel in action with others. We looked at this idea that this is a picture of the very story of God who sees all of us all in our fully messy selves, and he doesn't turn away. He draws near, and he listens, and he sees, and he waits, and he is with us in the midst of it all through the entire process. The story of a God who's patiently waiting with us, being with us, helping us to take breaths and to keep moving forward. So, that catches us up, hopefully, to part one of chapter three. We need to move on to the second half of chapter three. And before we do, I just want to start with a question. I would love for you just to raise your hand or throw out your answer. The question is, Off the top of your head, what are some of the most important things you never want to forget in your day-to-day? Or, another way of saying this, what are the things you always want to remember in your day-to-day? Raise your hand, someone. Yeah. Empathy. Empathy. Oh, okay. Awesome. Other things you don't want to forget in your day or you want to make sure you remember. Yeah. Deodorant. Deodorant is good. Thank you, Jesus. Yes. Your mom, okay? Others? Keys. keys. I was just reaching for my keys. I was like, please, don't let me lose this. Something else. Anything else? Post-words. Passwords. Good. Mm-hmm. Who I need to pick up when. Who I need to pick up. Absolutely. Last service, someone said my children. Yeah, you don't want to leave those anywhere. You know, forget those. Anything else? How many of you would feel lost if you lost your cellular device? This would be tragic for me. Uh, we all have things, right, that we know that we don't want to forget or that we want to remember. For those of us who are in school, we, want, we don't want to forget that there's a big homework assignment due. Some of us, don't, we don't want to forget where we parked our car. Or some of us who are around people all the time, we want to remember people's names, What about, though, remembering that we're not alone? Or remembering to breathe? Or remembering that we're loved? Communion, for example, is something that we are called to remember. Why? Well, because as we remember, we have hope. When we remember what Christ did, we remember his grace and his presence, that he's with us, that he sees us, and that he doesn't leave us. And this is a memory we all need. In chapters 3, 21 through 39, this flickering of hope section of chapter 3 is in many ways this geber, this everyman's memories. He's recalling truths. He's recalling psalms. He's recalling his past experiences. He's recalling his past teachings from the scriptures and what he's learned growing up in the temple. He's remembering his past mercies, his past answers to prayer. And he's expressing what he has known about God factually in his past up to now. Have you ever been in a place where you simply have to remind yourself or better yet, literally say something to yourself so you don't forget it? Maybe you're hyperventilating and you literally start to say to yourself, calm down, just breathe. You're going to get through this. You're going to be okay. Or maybe you're trying to finish something that you have accomplished before. Maybe you're on a run, and you're trying to get a certain distance that you've done before, but for whatever reason, in the moment, you're struggling and you're facing failure, and you say to yourself, you remind yourself, you can do this. You've done this before. Maybe you struggle with your identity and how you see yourself. And you have things that you say to yourself that are true. But in this moment, you're having a hard time believing or remembering them. So you say to yourself, remember, you are a child of God. You're beautiful. You have gifts. You are lovable. maybe you've been out of work for a long time and you've been struggling to believe that you have something of worth to offer to a company or a business so you say to yourself and you remind yourself you are educated you have skills you're successful you have good references a job is going to come or maybe you are depressed You are in the pit, and you've even pondered suicide, and you need to remember and literally say to yourself, don't forget, you have a purpose. You are important. You are loved, and you are not alone. We've all had times when we have needed to be reminded of something when we're in the midst of something tragic and difficult. And this remembering brings us hope, even if it's very little. And when we are able to remember and draw on our past stories and our experiences with God and who he is, that at a time in our past that felt hopeless, but we got through it, those moments give us hope, especially in a moment that currently seems helpless and hopeless. And that's what's happening here. Look at some of the things that this Geber is drawn to remember. The first thing is that he remembers that the Lord is good. Verse 21 says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The second thing he reminds himself is, is that he remembers that we're called to trust in the Lord, even in the midst of suffering. It says, verse 25, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust there may yet be hope. And the third thing he reminds himself is that the Lord is faithful. Verse 31 through 33 For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Now, we have to remember, again, this is entangled theology. So he's trying to hold on to, to remember and not forget his past, these truths that he knows about God from his story in his past. He's trying to hold on to these in the midst of the utter destruction he's feeling in his current here and now. And so his hope is entangled or side by side with all his questions of doubt and his current pain. Another way to put this is that he's remembering things that are currently at odds with everything he's currently experiencing. His hope, no matter how little he has, is being pulled from his past into his present situation that's full of despair and doubt. And just like when we take time every single Sunday at our church, to remember Christ's story when we take communion. We remember, we remember Jesus's story present. The hope of Christ is present with our current story that can be laced with despair. And it reminds us of this very key truth that's coming out here in this text as it continues. And that is that as we remember God, as we remember His goodness, His grace, His faithfulness, His call for us to wait and to trust in Him and His will, as we realize that He is with us, we're reminded that this is a relationship. That it's not a one-sided thing to God, to us, but that we play a part in this. That we have responsibilities to acknowledge, not just individually, but corporately, as a body, as a church. So we look and see what happens as the text moves on. It's this really amazing picture. It's a movement of worship, prayer, and repentance. If we look at verses 40 through 41, it says this, verse 40, Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. There's prayer. There's confession. This is corporate. Verse 41: Let us lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. There's this picture of worship. This congregation joins in this poem, and they start together to confess and ask for forgiveness. And then we get to what is arguably one of the most difficult verses in the entire book of Lamentations. And it says this: Verse 42. We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. This is not an individual prayer. This is a corporate prayer. Imagine all of us together talking to God. We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. And the congregation continues to pray together. Verse 43 You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You have made us scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. We have confessed, we have turned from our wickedness, but the Lord has not forgiven us. And we read this and we're now wondering if the poet who wrote this is now finding their theology of God to be wrong. God's character is that his steadfast love and his mercies unending what he's learned in the temple from the scriptures and all these places just doesn't seem to be the case right now in his here and now. Corporately, they're remembering other scriptures like Jeremiah 18.8, which is an amazing text. It says this, if any nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And they're thinking this, but where is the hope in this if the Lord is not even listening? It's this picture of exile, of being in the pit, of being overwhelmed by darkness into which this Geber feels In chapter 3, verse 1, it literally says that he felt led by the rod of the Lord into his wrath. But in all of this, in what knowledge this poet has of who the Lord is, it is just enough to win out over everything that they are going through and experiencing right now. It is just enough light that the darkness cannot win. God's revealed character emerges as truer than what the poet sees and experiences happening right now. And the way we know this is because it doesn't stop. The poet continues to pray regardless. And verses 52 through 66 is the second lament to God from this pit-like experience that he's experiencing right now. Verse 53 through 54 starts to describe the situation again. Verse 53, they tried to end my life in a pit and threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head and I thought I was about to perish. It brings back a picture maybe of Jonah praying in the belly of the fish. Or or like the scriptures that they would have known, like Psalm 88, the language is very similar. It says this, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. It's again this exile pit language. But we remember back in verse 18 of chapter 3, This Geber said, my splendor or future is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. And then we remember verse 21, where he says, but with this I call to mind, even in the pit of affliction, he calls to mind the Lord and is able to have hope. Here in this final chunk of the poem, It's in that hope that he calls to mind. It's in that hope that he is actually able to call upon the Lord despite his entangled theology and how distant the Lord seems from him in this terrible moment. And without diving into the details and the depths of all the meaning of Hebrew poetry, what follows in verse 55 through 58 I think is actually best not read in the way your translations have it, which is past tense. Um, I think it's best to hear it as it would have been spoken in that moment. As a calling that we are calling out now. A calling now upon the Lord to respond to this prayer in the midst of what he knows from the past and what he knows to be happening here and now. So if you look, you can read the text like this. Verse 55... I call out your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. Hear my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. Come near on the day I call you and say, Do not fear. That phrase, do not fear, is one of the most common phrases in the scriptures. It's also translated, Do not be afraid. It's going to be okay. And verse 58 ends, Lord, take up my case and redeem my life. Don't these words as you read them sound like prayers that you might actually pray? We hear words of lament and we can see that these actually could be our words. We hear them and for some of us here today, these actually are our words. We are in the pit right now. And for some of us, we've prayed these prayers maybe even recently. We just recently got out of this situation, but these were words that resonated to our situation. And as hard and honest and graphic and raw these words are, when we stop and think about it, we see how these are our very words, our emotions, our questions, our laments as well when we're in those difficult places. We can enter into these cries and these Words and these pleas and laments because this book is this poetic picture of the reality of life experienced while in the midst of suffering. And we all can relate. We've all been in places of suffering, and we all will be there again at some point. Lamentations goes into the dark places of human suffering. We can feel how it probes the depths of human despair, how it touches on those feelings of guilt and shame and anger and violence and death and that often seemingly kind of silence of God in such moments when we read it. It's this book, and I mean, it's just full of complete vulnerability before the world and God but I hope that what we also see is is an expression of ultimate desperate reliance on God his goodness his mercy and his promises it's a picture of real honest, hard, ever changing, entangled theology of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ And again, especially if we're in that place or we've been there, what we find in those difficult places of hardship, there is waiting. And here again in chapter three, there is no reply from God. There's no explanation, there's no answers to the prayers. In fact, we don't leave the pit today. In our text. But here, frankly, with nothing left to rely on, here the poet turns to the only thing left to hope in. The promises of God in the scriptures, despite all the evidence in the world right now in the poets here and now that goes contrary to it. And that invites us to learn and remember and to live out these same realities in our day-to-day lives. I'd like to um, invite our worship team to come forward. And as they do, if you don't have it out, I'd like to invite you in your bulletin to pull out your connection cards. And I'd love to just have you turn it over and share a response from our conversation today. Thoughts, things that you have questions about, um, things that stuck out to you, what you've been thinking as we've been in this book, I would love for you to take a moment and write that down. And as you leave, there's a wood box at each door. You could slide it in there. And it's just really great to hear how you guys are processing this text as well. But before we do end, um, I'd actually like us corporately to take a place to be in silence. And that's where you're going to need that other sheet of paper too. Because in this place of silence, what I'd like to invite you to do is to simply take a moment to remind yourselves of the promises of God, of God's character, of the whole story of God from Genesis to Revelation. I want you to take a moment to remember who is God to you. And with that piece of paper, if you want, you could even make a column or just a list or write down some of those things that you think of. But I also, in this time of silence, want you to make sure you remember words of lament that you either currently are feeling in your story or you have felt. The cries that you've experienced, the laments, the pleas for help to be seen and listened to, and you could make another column or you could just kind of... Write them all on that piece of paper. And so what I hope you see is that I want you to, in a sense, paint your own picture of your personal entangled theology. And I imagine as you do, it's going to be laced with doubt and confession and prayer and worship and truths about God and his promises and who knows what else. And I want to be clear, you're not going to have enough time to complete this. I'd love for you just to to kind of think and simply remember and and hopefully take some time later to, to continue to paint. And the last thing as we do this, I want you to be aware and reminded of the very breath you're breathing right now. You are alive. God has given you the breath of life, his spirit to sustain you, to empower you, to move you, and you did nothing to deserve it. It is your gift of grace. And it's for you. And it's for me. In every moment of every day. No matter how great. Or how horrible it is. So. I want us to take a moment to be in silence. Before God. To ponder all this. And if you want to draw or write or just be quiet and listen to these things, you could do so. Um, And after a few moments, I'll close us in prayer and we'll end with a song together. So let's uh, be silent before the Lord.